0: There it is. A win for the ages.
1: This is All-American, a new series from Stitcher.
0: You realize Tiger Woods doesn't know who he is. Best in the history of golf. No question in my mind. And this season, we're asking. What if the story of Tiger Woods that the media has been telling, what if it's been completely wrong?
1: Season one of All-American premieres August 20th. Subscribe or favorite now. Sometimes, your most formative memories can happen at the grocery store. For Myra Jones-Taylor, the first one happened when she was about five years old in a supermarket parking lot.
0: And there was this elderly black woman crossing the street with one of those wire baskets. You know, she was pushing something, and she looked tired and sad. Myra's biracial. Her dad's black and her mom's white. And I looked up at my mom and started sobbing and said, I don't want to grow up to be an old black woman. And I have no recollection of how she reacted to this, but I—that that is a very, very powerful and, and you know, a, a kind of a shameful memory um, that I have. But it's completely tied. It's like there's like a, a string that's tied between that memory and this moment that happened many years later.
1: Myra was now a senior in high school, still grocery shopping with her mom like they always did on Saturdays. And I was
0: coming down the aisle, kind of toward her. We must have separated. We were coming back down the same aisle together. And a black woman was ahead of me, uh, an older black woman, beautiful woman, beautiful gray, silvery hair. And I can only see the back of her.
1: Myra and her mom were both silently admiring this stranger. And at the time, Myra's mom was menopausal, in her feelings a lot. And that day, it was in full force. And my mother burst into tears. Myra was like, uh, mom... What the heck? But soon, she understood that her mom was picturing Myra in 60 years, a senior citizen babe with silvery hair, doing her grocery shopping on a Saturday.
0: And she said, I'll never see you as an older woman. I'll never see how beautiful you're going to be when you grow up. My mother knew long before I did that I would grow up to be a beautiful Black woman.
1: This is The Longest Shortest Time. I'm Andrea Salenzi. Myra Jones-Taylor is now in her 40s, a beautiful Black woman who lives in D.C. And just like how her white mom helped Myra to navigate her identity as a biracial kid while they strolled between the cereal aisle and frozen foods, when Myra married a white guy, she was prepared to do the same for her own biracial kids, telling them about beautiful Black women like Diana Ross and Ruby Dee while they bagged produce and picked out yogurts. But instead, the conversation she's having with her kids now is completely different and something Myra's still figuring out how to navigate. Because her youngest kid, her son August, he looks white. He passes. So even though she knows he'll someday be a beautiful black man, she also knows that none of the strangers in the supermarket are going to see him that way. Growing up in the 80s, Myra loved hearing her mom tell stories of fighting racial injustice. And she didn't say, you know, this is your lesson in racism, but that's what they were. Like the time her mom found an apartment for the family in East Palo Alto. And when she came back to sign the lease, no longer alone, but now with the Black husband and kids waiting in the car, suddenly the apartment was rented.
0: And my mother um, does not suffer fools gladly and does not, she will not take no for an answer and will fight injustice to the end of her days. And so she said, to
1: hell, to hell it's rented. She went to legal aid and contested the landlord in court. She won, and he was ordered to spruce up the apartment, give them a couple months rent free. And then my favorite part in all this is that my mom then went back later on to become a tester.
0: So she would be the white woman who would go out to rent an apartment and find that it was, you know, available. And then there would be another Black couple or a Black person who would go out and do the same thing and be told the same apartment was not
1: available. Even as kids, Myra and her siblings knew why their mom told them these stories.
0: Those stories were very early kind of signals to me that racism was in full effect in our lives, uh, but there was
1: something you could do about it. But as Myra got older, her racial identity started forming separate from what her mom wanted or could understand.
0: She wanted us to refer to ourselves as biracial because I think she wanted to have some claim
1: to who we are. Of course, this was the 80s, and instead of biracial, everyone said mixed. Mixed just sounded confused.
0: There was nothing specific about it. There was nothing that I could claim.
1: When Myra was seven, her parents split up and her mom remarried a white guy. Strangers at Disneyland would now see two white parents and three black kids and remark on what wonderful people her parents must be to have adopted all of them. And because racist ideas can be so pervasive, Myra and her siblings internalize that message that, wow, their stepdad was such a great guy for marrying their mom because she came with them.
0: That was a story we told ourselves because that was a story the world was telling us that he didn't have to do that. He must have really loved her because, boy, he had, to, he had to raise three black children in the bargain.
1: When Myra started high school in San Jose, California, her friends were of all different races. But one day, she was hanging out with her white friends, and you're all getting these personalized license plate keychains. It's part of a school fundraiser. It was the 80s. And Myra had an idea. She'd just seen a movie called The Burglar. It's a movie with Bob Goldwaith
0: and um, Whoopi Goldberg. Whoopi Goldberg. Hey, what's happening, man? Bob Goldthwait. So what are you doing when you're not
1: driving? You guys wild. And the conceit is the Goldthwait character believes he's a black man trapped in a white man's body.
0: The reason I'm here because I'm a black man in a white
1: man's world and I'm just of- And it's funny and it's ridiculous and whatever.
0: So I listened to classic rock. I also listen to R&B. I listen to um, Live 105 for those listeners in San Francisco. Um, you know, it's the modern rock station out in, in the Bay Area, or was at least. And so my friends always thought that this was ridiculous that I hear I'm this black girl who knows more about Steve Miller Band and
1: Bob Seger and, you know, than I do about, I don't know, Wilson Pickett. Myra and her white friends wrote this on her keychain: White girl stuck in a black girl's body. As a joke. So I, you know, it was
0: this kind of spur of the moment, this is funny, you know, my white friends thought this is funny. Well, this is pre-Instagram, pre-social media, thank God. But, you know, news traveled quickly around my school and black folks
1: were really not happy about this. Shocker. Myra was proud to be biracial. Growing up, she had always been exposed to a diverse mix of gay, straight, Asian, white, black, every kind of friend and neighbor. But suddenly, all of her black friends in high school were furious over a keychain. She didn't get it.
0: I'll never forget my friend, Damian Mathis, came up to me. And this is a time when I think a lot of people were pissed and were about to write me off um, as a sellout, as uh, Uncle Tom. He came to me and he said, don't you want to be black? And it was this, um, I get choked up thinking about it, it was this. It was an invitation. It was such a gracious move for him to say, you're welcome if you want, you know, you're, we're welcome here, but do you want to be here? And I did. I realized in that moment that my white friends, while well-intended, they didn't mean any harm by it, they would never welcome me as one of their own. And the way that Damien had, and the way that I had this open-ended invitation
1: to being part of a black community. Myra's racial identity from then on was constantly on her mind. She wrote her college admissions essay about being biracial, and then headed to college at Northwestern.
0: And blackness was very differently defined in Chicago than in California.
1: There, black students for the most part, went to black churches joined black fraternities and sororities, but none of that was Myra. I was this big curly hair, kind of, you know, hippie child
0: kind of kid showing up on campus. And there was just no, I just did not know where the
1: hell I was going to fit in. That was the year she had a memorable conversation with her English professor, a novelist named Leon Forrest, who's black. And fair skin. I said, you know, Professor Forrest, this is after having a
0: class with him, I would like to create a biracial students club, and I would love for you to be the sponsor. And I will never forget Professor Forrest, brilliant, brilliant man, looked across the table at me and he said, so how are you going to let people in? Are you going to bring a brown paper bag
1: to your meetings? And I was floored. He was referring to the brown paper bag tests that some Black fraternities and churches in the South created to let lighter-skinned folks in and keep darker-skinned folks out. He's like, "I I would never, ever be a part of that. This was another moment for Myra, where she realized, why would she separate herself with her biracial identity from Black people who already wanted to embrace her? Myra stopped saying biracial, started saying Black, I step out into the world every day as a black woman, and I take
0: great pride in that, and I take tremendous responsibility in that,
1: and that doesn't change because my mother's white. Then, in the spring of 1996, Myra was a 20-year-old college student, dancing at a salsa club in Chicago with help from her fake ID. And she spotted this guy in a white linen shirt, tan and glowing. He walked over and, in flawless Spanish, asked her sister to dance. But Myra's sister was taking a break from dancing, so she suggested he ask Myra. The two of them danced until the club closed at four in the morning. That night, on the dark dance floor, the tan guy in the linen shirt passed as Puerto Rican. But as she got to know him better, she learned he was actually just a white guy who'd recently been to Puerto Rico. Matt was actually from Springfield, Illinois, with French and German heritage, you know, white. This is going to sound wrong,
0: and if there are trolls out there, they're going to—I'm sure I'll get hit for this one. But the only thing against my husband, or before, you know, we got married, was that he was white. Because I desperately wanted my children to have black grandparents. I could not deny my own
1: children something that I had longed for so much as a kid. As a little girl, Myra hadn't been close with her father— so she only had white grandparents who she loved, but she'd watch Ruby Dee and Ozzie Davis on TV and wish they were her grandparents. But she was in love. They got married. And Myra accepted that her future kids would probably have the same longing, but at least she could help them with it. Then Myra started imagining other things, like what her future kids were going to look like.
0: I assumed they would come out looking like me. You know, like I knew what biracial looked like. I lived it. So, like, that wasn't ever an issue. You know, like, how are you going to raise biracial children? I'm like, whatever, I'm going to raise. A, that's, that's my experience, right? So,
1: it won't be any different. But it was so different. Stay with us.
0: Say advertisement. Advertisement. Good job. <laughs>
1: Welcome back. So growing up, Myra was always fascinated with stories of passing, when someone with a multiracial identity can pass for white. She used to read stories about these people in slave narratives when she was a kid. But back then, she was skeptical. This idea of passing, I
0: just thought, was, was co- almost something that was created by white people because it, it, I never trusted I never believed in this idea that I wouldn't be able to, or other black folks wouldn't be able to recognize one of our own.
1: While some people will tell you, I don't see race, Myra's always been proud of how good she is at that.
0: There's a certain hue to your skin when you're fair skinned but you're black. Like there's a certain quality to it that you can pick up on, hair texture, nose, just something that I have always
1: been able to be like, oh, yep, that's... I I see you. Um, you You're you're one of us. So when Myra first became a mom to her daughter, Phoenix, even though her baby was fair-skinned, Myra could still see her daughter's blackness. You could tell she has something up in her. There's something going. Like, she has some kind of... She's a child of color, you can tell. But then, right away, like her own mom did all those years ago, Myra started worrying about how their skin tones were different and what that meant for her being able to claim Phoenix as her child. I remember thinking,
0: oh my gosh, people
1: aren't going to think
0: I'm her mother. They're, uh, they're, they're going to challenge my connection to this child because she's,
1: she's so fair. At the time, Myra had a mommy coworker, her best maternity leave buddy, who was also a Black woman with a fair-skinned baby. And the two of them would take the train down from New Haven, where Myra was getting her Ph.D. And they'd go into New York City together to spend the day looking at art, going out to eat. And
0: I remember we were strategizing on Metro North, heading down from New Haven to New York City. Like, we're going to the Upper West Side, where the only women of color we're going to see are going to be nannies. And well, there's nothing wrong with being a nanny, but damn it, I have the C-section scars to prove that, you know, this is my kid and I want some ownership over this. I want to be able to claim her.
1: And, and I remember thinking, well, we'll just nurse. Myra and her mom friend nursed on the train. They nursed at the Natural History Museum. They nursed outside at a cafe. But for all of Myra's efforts to claim baby Phoenix, this urge was only heightened two years later when she met her son August. August
0: was a C-section that was early, and so he was perfectly, you know, rounded head. And um, But he was just, uh, you know, blonde. You know, you couldn't really quite tell what color his eyes were going to be, but blue. Um, and really, really pale little boy. And so, you know, my husband tells the story of how when he first held August, he said, okay, our son is has albinoism. And, okay, like, we can, we'll take care of him. He will be okay. But that was his first reaction because he was so fair. So neither of us ever
1: thought that we would have a child who looks so white. August. Not albino, just really fair. Has Myra's nose, her cheekbones, her eye shape. But he also looks a lot like his dad. You can hold photos up of them both as kids. And there they are, these matching, toe-headed babies. People used to say when he was younger, people in the neighborhood, like he really, I don't know if they were saying
0: this to show how you know, woke they were or how open-minded they could be. It was a point of pride to say how much they could see him in me. But Myra,
1: who's always prided herself in her ability to see color, couldn't see it in her own son. I would never have an ICU moment with my son. I really wouldn't. So now, instead of raising biracial kids like Myra's mom was doing, Myra and her husband realized that they had two Black kids. One who looked biracial and another who passed for white. And passing was an experience neither of them really knew. Back then, they were raising their family in New Haven, which they loved— because everyone there knew that their kids were theirs. It's like Cheers and Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood all
0: rolled up in one.
1: There's this one neighborhood feeder school where all the Yale folks sent their kids. But Myra felt like there weren't enough African-American students or kids from different socioeconomic backgrounds.
0: I did not want them growing up thinking that every coffee table... You know, every, everybody's home. They're in, their, in their home, they have a coffee table with a
1: copy of The New Yorker, The New York Times, and The Nation. So they picked a more diverse school for their kids, where there were Section 8 kids, recent immigrant kids, and kids with no affiliation to Yale. She signed them up for swimming classes, but they didn't stick with it when she realized that everyone in the classes were white. And then she signed her kids up for a track club, one that was mostly black.
0: I was so worried that my kids were going to grow up looking as they do, and then growing up in this kind of socioeconomic bubble where they wouldn't know how to
1: be with black people. That was a huge fear of mine. But despite her best efforts, Myra's kids sometimes struggled with their identity. And so they would come home all the time, We well, you know, you're not raising us black. You're not raising us to be black. And I was like, what does that mean to you? Just like with teenage Myra, their sense of blackness hinged on acceptance from their black peers. As a biracial kid in the 80s, It had taken Myra a long time to believe that Black folks held a place for her, to feel accepted. But for her kids, who had close bonds with Black family and community, their inner racial identity was clear. The thing they had to overcome was how everyone else saw them.
0: We knew we we couldn't be with them when they're walking the halls in the classroom, you know, of the school. I think it's as hard as it is for any parent. It's not just about their racial identity. It's just, are they going to be okay in their own skin. I think it's just complicated in that, for August in particular, that his own skin doesn't necessarily match his inner understanding of himself and his family.
1: Which is why it was especially challenging for the kids two years ago, when the family started packing up their life in New Haven to move to Washington, D.C. Phoenix was going to be a freshman in high school, and August was starting sixth grade. So
0: we were packing up you we know, were just in his room packing, packing up children's books, I remember. And he said, you know, Mom, how are, are they going to know who I am? How are my new peers going to know who I am? And I, I'm thinking middle school, right? I'm like, well, no one knows who you are in middle school. Like, that's just, what, that's just what happens in middle school, honey. You'll have to, you know, it's, it, you're not going to be alone. Everybody's going to go through this experience. He said, no, no, how are they going to know that I'm black? And, you know, I think I realized that that was so much of his anxiety and sadness of leaving New Haven was that a part of his identity that's really hard won in some senses, although it was also kind of taken for granted because it had been this progression, you know, of 12 years of people recognizing he was my child and he's a child of color, was not there. That foundation that we had built for him was gone, and he had to build a new one on his own.:
1: Back then, he had a favorite T-shirt. It was his Black Lives Matter shirt, the one he'd asked his mom to get him for his birthday. And that boy wore it every day. he wore it all
0: summer. I mean he was always in that shirt. And then they moved. All of a sudden, he did not have that shirt on, and it was noticeable. I didn't ask him about it at first. Just then, I said, kind of like, "Hey, where's that? Where's your Black Lives Matter T-shirt?" And he, you know, "Oh,
1: I don't know. It must be packed away somewhere." Knowing full well, he knew exactly where it was. Myra knew the move was hard on him. It had just been a few weeks before that conversation when August had been surrounded by his black family. It was a summer family reunion with members from Myra's father's side. August was running around with his cousins of black and brown hues. He heard stories about their great uncle who was fired from his factory job after he told his boss he supported Martin Luther King Jr. August watched his mom and aunties stay up late, singing and dancing. Myra loved seeing him fit in there. I don't know how to describe it. He, uh,
0: there are no questions. You know, we're all singing songs, hip-hop and R&B songs from the 90s. And then my children and my nieces and nephews are just cracking jokes at us or joining in. One of my nephews, it's a great video of him singing Candy Girl. I'm like, what you know about Candy Girl? But, you know, so it's all coming back. And, like, it's just part of their lives is just to be part of this family. And my children are very much part of that family. That is their family.
1: How important do you think it is for a kid to have a racial identity?
0: For me, I will say this. I take such comfort in being part of something bigger than myself. And knowing that people are going to recognize me as one of their own and protect me and defend me and support me and love me because of the basic fact of what I look like and who I am. And there's there's a shared experience that we all have and that with that comes an instant form of family And I think for me, that's the hardest part is that my children, my son in particular, he doesn't have that. I mean, I I cannot tell you how much it means to me to have somebody, if I'm having a hard day, to see another person of color and just like, hey, sis, I don't know this person, never met this person. But there's a instant recognition of family, of love, of shared experience that I can tap into. And it will, if you're not Black, I can't describe it to you. It is this immediate and bountiful feeling of warmth.
1: In a bit, Myra's going to find a way to get August to express what he's been going through. In a tiny way. Because remember, this is a teenager talking with his mom about feelings. Don't go away. (laughs) 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 Welcome back. So Myra's family had made this move to D.C. and was back to school night for her son August. This would be the first night she'd meet his teacher, but she had a work trip planned out of town and let August know she couldn't make it. He looked upset. He doesn't
0: talk about it all the time, which is why when he came to me and said, Mom, you can't miss my back-to-school night. You know, how will my teachers know I'm black? I was floored. Because I know it's in there. I know he thinks about it. We talk about it. But that was the first time when he, you know, kind of opened the window up, stuck his head out, and shouted that to me in a way that he'd never articulated before.
1: Myra couldn't stop thinking about how much her physical presence was tied to her son's racial identity, and she wanted to give him another way to be seen. She started writing about their relationship, and it turned into an essay called Helping My Fair-Skinned Son Embrace His Blackness. It was published in The Atlantic. But first, she had August read it and give it his blessing.
0: He was so grateful. He sat there and read it, and came down to me and just gave me this huge hug, and he just said, thank you. He said, you know, you no one could have written this the way you did because you also have experienced this.
1: When the piece came out, Myra was flooded with emails, notes on Facebook and LinkedIn from so many people who pass, who told her that they had a white parent or two black parents, and they knew what August was going through my very favorite,
0: was from a man who said he can pass, black man. He said, tell your son he comes from a long line of brothers. And I just sat there and wept Um, because no one had ever called August a brother. And it was such a beautiful act of generosity from a perfect stranger
1: Even though Myra knows August will never have that experience of walking down the street and exchanging an easy, familial nod with another Black person, she knows there's another point of entry.
0: If you want to be part of this beautiful family and community, you need to put in the work. And part of that work is about Black liberation. It's about taking on racism and inequality that's another entry point, if you will, for you into black family when it's not so
1: obvious. Myra doesn't just tell her kids about Diana Ross and Ruby D. These days, she talks to them about Walter White. So, Walter White, not of that television show. Not from Breaking Bad, but Walter White, who led the NAACP from 1931 until 1955. Walter White uh, had two black parents,
0: and he could pass. He looked straight up white. And he used his whiteness to infiltrate the Klan. He used his whiteness to find out about lynchings that might be happening. And then he, he traded on this to fight for racial justice in this country. Um, and so I... I I point to that, and that's hard, right? That's kind of a high standard. Yeah, okay, you want to be seen as black, go, you know, become the head of the NAACP. That's a that's not fair. But what I say to the kids is, like, that is something that you can do because you're not always going to be – you may not automatically be accepted or acknowledged, but
1: you can do something
0: for your family.
1: When Myra's piece came out, a senior organizer from the Black Lives Matter Global Network reached out and said – Your son's story is my story. She sent August a new T-shirt. But he hasn't worn it yet. Even though August's friends are mostly people of color, they're Syrian and Vietnamese, not black. Myra doesn't know why he's not wearing the T-shirt yet. If it's because it's his most treasured possession, or if it's because he doesn't know how the other kids are going to react. Sarah Jones-Taylor lives in Washington, D.C. and works for an organization there called Zero to Three. It's basically her job to advocate for the rights and safety of babies and toddlers. Nothing to do with this episode, just a cool organization to check out. We have a link to them on our website, longestshortesttime.com. This episode was produced by me, Andrea Salenzi, with Jackie Sajiko. Our editor is Amy Drozdovska. Our show's creator and executive producer is Hillary Frank. Our engineer is Brendan Burns. Our music is performed by Hotmoms.gov. We get editorial support from Peter Clowney, Antonia Acatunde, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Rika Murthy, and Julia Wang. Next time on the longest shortest time, you know our producer, I just said her name a little bit ago, Jackie. Uh, you know, she helps us make the show every week. And she's got some exciting news. Here's a hint. Tell
0: them about the the cake thing that's been happening. <laughs> that I want cake all the time. Yeah. Did you say tell them? Tell the world about this cake thing where you're like, I need a cake. It's
1: like 11.30 p.m. Do not miss this episode. Subscribe to The Longest Shortest Time on Stitcher or wherever you're listening right now. And as always, here at The Longest Shortest Time, we want to hear your stories. Right now, we'd love to hear about what surprised you when you were dealing with polycystic ovarian syndrome. Weird fertility hijinks, uh, what changed in your life or in your relationship, something we've never heard before. Tell us. Go to com. hit the Participate tab, and submit your story. <laughs> <laughs>